Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, once again, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 8, 9, and 10. But before we go there, well, we got to rewind just a bit, and we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, just to get you caught up. So are y'all ready to receive the word today? Come on, y'all got to convince me. First service was sleepy. It's like I was preaching at the DMV. People were just kind of... No, it wasn't that bad. I love my first service. It was a little sleepy. Uh, are, are, y'all, are y'all ready to receive the word? All right, okay. Okay, all right. So uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let me read this. I'll comment, and then we're going to go into uh, the rest of our, uh, our passages today. Verses, again, verse 8, 9, and 10. Here we go. Uh, beginning in verse 1. And you, and you, Ephesians, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, finish it with me, were by nature, what's it say? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse four, good news. But God, everybody say, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been what? By grace, you have been saved. And verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, just to recap, that's a lot, isn't it? I I preached this passage last Sunday. If you missed it, you can go online and catch the message there. But, But just in brief, in short, here, Paul is reminding the Ephesians, and by extension, this is also for us, of who they once were. And he uses strong language, doesn't he? Here he talks about how they were not asleep, but they were what? They were dead in trespasses and in their sins. They were dead, not spiritually asleep, but dead. And when you're dead spiritually, it basically means this. You're very much alive physically, but being dead spiritually basically means that you have no connection with God. You have no desire in and of yourself to please God. You are unresponsive to God the things of God. How many of y'all, if you think back in your past, can remember that time in your life before you came to Christ? How many of y'all, well, if you can't remember, I promise you were all there, okay? You were there before you came. Maybe you don't think you were that bad, and you're not, you you weren't as bad as you could have been, but as far as your nature, you were dead in trespasses. You were dead in your sins, okay? Paul says to the Ephesians, this is who you were. Like, this is your state, okay? But then he goes on to say, but God. And if you're a Christian, you had that but God moment, didn't you? This is who you were, but God, though you were dead, God did what? He made you alive, didn't he? Like you, you remember when you got saved? Raise your hand if you remember when you got saved. Some of you haven't yet. That's okay. Hopefully you will today, but rem- let me see your hands. When you got saved, you remember, okay? Raise your hand like if you could characterize it as you came alive. Let me see if that's how you felt, okay? Well, whether you felt that way or not, that's what happened. If you really became a disciple, a follower, a Christian, okay, you, you, you from the inside out, you, you came alive spiritually. Like, that's what took place. So Paul is saying to the Ephesians, you were dead, unresponsive. There was no spiritual life in you. But God, because he's rich in mercy, because God is great in love toward us, because, because God is this way, God, watch, raised us from our spiritual tombs, from spiritual death into life. So if you're here today and you care about what I'm saying, you care about the word being preached, you care about the things of God, that means that you are alive in Christ. And how many of y'all know that's all God's doing? Because, and that's Paul's point, because before you were dead, there was nothing in you and you couldn't bring yourself to life. 
God, by his own doing, brought you to life. And so, so Paul is he, he's, he's highlighting this truth for us, and he wants us to be very appreciative of what God has done. And so I said this last Sunday. Let me say it again. Um, this is our story, essentially, okay? And by that, I mean this. What happens to Christ also happens to us. Here's what I mean by that. God raised Christ, didn't he? We're about to celebrate that come Resurrection Sunday. God raised Christ. Would y'all agree with that? God made him alive. Would y'all agree with that? God raised him. Would you agree with that? And we're told in Ephesians that God seated Christ in heavenly places at his right hand. So all that happened to Christ historically. Like, who believes that? Like, y'all believe every word of what I just said. If you do, okay, that means you are a believer. And what happened to Christ also happens to you, according to Paul. In other words, Christ was made alive. He was made alive physically, but God made you alive how? Spiritually. God raised Christ physically, but he raised you how? Yeah. God seated Christ at his right hand, and that's a place that he holds right to this very moment. So Christ is made alive, he's raised, he's seated, and where Christ goes, you go to that same place. How many of y'all know our ultimate destination is heaven? Not just there, but here, God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. But my point is, we've been made alive, we've been raised, and we, though you're, you're seated right here at Midtown, right, I get it, I see you, y'all look good. But, but according to Paul, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and above every name that can be named. You're seated with him, which means that all of the demonic forces of this world are under your feet. That doesn't mean you're not affected by them. It just means you have power and authority over them, right? Like that was last week's message. I feel like I should just go home and leave y'all with that. But we got to keep going through this book because it'll be like, you know, 10 years from now if we, if, that we finish if I don't keep going. So what, watch this. Are y'all with me? Does that make sense? So whatever happened to Christ happens to us. Where Christ goes, we go. I mean, we are, here, here's the language, and I'm, I'm teaching y'all today. We are united with him. We're like this. I mean, closer than this. It's just the best way I can show you. I mean, we are that close to God. We are that close, this close to Christ, okay? The way I've described it, the way I'm showing you right now. That's pretty close, isn't it? And so, so, some, some, sometimes people say, well, I don't feel very close to God. And I understand what people mean by that. But according to Paul, in Christ and with Christ is really, really close. How many of y'all know God's here with us right now? He's with us. He sees us. He lives in us. I mean, what, what an incredible truth that God would take up residence with us. What an incredible truth that God would raise us with Christ and seat us. But that's just, that's what Paul is saying in this passage. This is our story. So we were dead, but now we're what? We are alive. Okay, y'all get the point, but watch this. In, in Ephesians 2, verse 5, and in verse 8, Paul gets into more detail about, well, how we were saved, okay? He says we were raised. He says we we're made alive. He said we're seated. But look at, look at what it says in verse 5 here in, in Ephesians, again, 2, 5. Paul says, by grace, you have been what? Now, how many, how many, we all know this. How, raise your hand if you know that you've been saved by grace. Let me, raise your hand if you knew that already. Okay. When, when somebody asks you, you know, how did your life change? You know, when somebody asks you about your testimony and you give it, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you say oftentimes? I am saved. I'm a Christian only by the what of God? By the grace of God. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like I once was lost, but now I'm was blind, but now I, yeah. Isn't that our story? Like, that's our story. We, we know we've been saved by the amazing grace of God. But here in verse 5, Paul, he pushes it in, this thought. But then, again, in verse 8, he repeats it and qualifies it further, this whole topic of salvation, but also uh, the relationship of salvation and, and how grace is fleshed out. He says this, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Through faith. Now, we're going to come back to faith here in just a minute, but let me ask y'all a question. What is grace? We all know we've received it. We all know we're saved by it, but like, if I were to ask you to define it, what would you say? Now, of course, I'm not asking you to, to tell me out loud, but just to provoke you to think. If you had a few minutes, you're in line at a restaurant, at a coffee shop, wherever, it doesn't matter, and you were to share your testimony and you were to say to someone, 
I am saved. I am delivered. I'm going to heaven because of the amazing grace of God. And someone's like, what is, okay, I, that's awesome, but what does grace, like, what is that? What does that mean? What would you say? All right. Well, there are several things you could say. Grace has been defined several ways, but let me give you the essence of what it is. Are y'all ready? I'm equipping you. So when someone asks you, this is for you personally, but this is for, for, for you as you minister to other people. Are y'all ready? This is as simple as I can get it without losing substance, okay? Here, here's what it is. God's grace is his unmerited favor. Everybody say favor. favor. Unmerited favor and power in your life. Okay, let's, let's start in order here with this word unmerited. Y'all know what that means, right? Unmerited. There was nothing good in you that God looked at you and, and, and saw and said, okay, because... Because they have done so many good things, because they have done X amount of works, whatever, because of them, because they're so good, I'm going to give them grace. No. Unmerited means there's nothing in us because Paul just said we're what? Starts with a D? Dead in the trespasses and sins. There's nothing in us. There's nothing that we could bring to God that God would be like, oh, thank you. Now I can give you grace. Okay, it's unmerited. Let me give you another word. Grace is free. Grace, by necessity, is a gift, right? It's unmerited. Grace is unmerited favor. <laughs> I love that word. Favor. God's loving, we can say, say it this way, his gracious unmerited, really awesome disposition toward us. It's unmerited favor that he shows you, but it's not just favor, it's that, but with the favor, let's, let's unpack this, with the favor comes power, okay? So if you just say it's just favor and you don't qualify, then it's not full and not accurate. So let's say it this way. Grace is God's unmerited what? And in our lives. What does that look like? Well, we, we receive the grace of God, and that grace looks like many things in our lives, doesn't it? God's favor's on you right now. And his favor's on you in day-to-day -day life. But according to Paul in Ephesians 2, we're talking about something that God has shown you through a person, through the God-man Jesus Christ. God's grace was displayed in sending Jesus to this world while we, in the language of Romans, were dead in sins, but let me use the words of Romans here. When we were at our worst, that's the concept that used in Romans 5. When we were at our worst, alienated in Adam, apart from, from God, God sent Christ the best. He sent this free gift to us, totally undeserved, totally free. In our dead spiritual state, God sent him to us, Christ to us. And that's y'all just nothing but unmerited favor. The favor that we have in Christ is this. Jesus bled, Jesus suffered, and Jesus died to cleanse us, to forgive our sins. So watch this. So that we can be in right standing and in relationship with God. So Jesus died in our place to forgive our sins so that we could come into relationship with God. Come on, y'all. The Father thought our salvation. The Son bought our salvation. And the Holy Spirit brought it to pass. So, so we're in relationship with the Father through the blood of the Son, but also by the power of the Spirit, because the power of the Spirit makes us alive to the work of the Son, who brings us into relationship with the Father. But we're not just in relationship with the Father, we're also in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Does that make sense? You're like, kind of, just embrace it, because it's true. You're in relationship with God, because God showed favor to you, and continues to show favor to you, what he could have done was left us all in our sins in the spiritual ditch that we were in. He could have left us there, but because he's rich in mercy, because of his great love, he rescued us and he saved us. Does that make sense? So we are saved from the consequences of sin because of God's grace. We were brought into right relationship with God because of his grace expressed particularly through Jesus Christ. So let me say it this way. 
Grace leads to our right standing with God because we have a substitute. How many of y'all believe in Jesus? He stands in your place. He provides cleansing for your sin. So because of that gift, we stand before God in right standing in that relationship. But listen carefully. Grace not only leads us to right standing with God, but it also empowers us to live rightly before God. Think about what I just said. It's not just standing right before him. Thank God for that, right? If nothing else, thank God for that. If nothing else, thank God for that, right? Amen? But the grace of God is at work in us to actually change us. Like, raise your hand if God's changed you. He changed you and continues to change us because of his great grace, because of his great power at work in us. Paul says that he worked harder than the others, not him, but the grace of God that was with him. Grace saves, grace keeps, grace empowers us. Paul says to Titus, in Titus it says this, that the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. How many of y'all know it's the grace of God that empowers us to live for God, to be different in this life, not just to go to heaven, but to bring a little bit of heaven to the earth as we live out this thing called Christianity. How many of you are all with me today? It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. The good we do, it's by the grace of God. We stand in his grace. We live in his grace. We sleep in his grace. And we arise standing in his amazing <laughs> grace. All right. So that's verse 5. And that's verse 8, at least part, part, part of verse 8. So look at what Paul says. He says that in verse 7, that in the coming ages, that God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he shows it to us now, but forever. Forever, in the ages to come, in heaven, God will continue to show us grace. So grace never runs out. And it's not just giving us grace, it's showing us grace. And I think there's a revelation of it that we'll continue to get probably throughout eternity in heaven. Oh, like we get it now. Like, oh, okay, Pascal, that makes sense. But in heaven, we're going to be like, oh, oh, oh. And we'll never be like to the point we fully understand. We'll be like, oh, whoa, whoa. It's like you continue to get more grace and more understanding of it. And see, you begin to get a picture of what it is, the height of God's grace, when you understand the depth of your depravity. When you understand how far down you were, that's when you, you begin to understand just how big and how awesome the grace of God really is in your life. Are y'all tracking? So i got to get out of my introduction. Watch this. In the coming ages... I love this. He will show the immeasurable riches of his grace. But then he goes on in verses 8 and 9 to say this, lest we miss the point. Paul says, beginning in verse 8, he says, And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of what? The gift of God. Verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may what? So that no one may boast. When he says that this is not your own doing, what is he talking about? What's the this? This is salvation. You didn't save yourself. Amen. You couldn't save yourself. Let me say it again, because you were, it starts with a D, you were dead in your sins. The point here that Paul is making is that salvation, from the beginning all the way to the end, it is a gift. And I've said it this way. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Salvation is a gift for the guilty, not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. That's the first service. How many of y'all are guilty? Raise your hand. Just go ahead and do it. We're all guilty. You've heard me talk, you know, talk about people who come and they say, well, Pastor Scott, I feel so guilty. And I'm like, well, what'd you do? And they tell me, I'm like, well, it's because you are, you know. You are. Now, once you go to Christ and you repent, you place your faith in him and you, you get cleansing. How many of y'all are thankful for that fountain of cleansing that was opened at the cross that not only provides cleansing for you when you get saved, but every day as you are saved for the rest of your life, you've got a fountain called Calvary. The blood of Jesus forgives us and cleanses us as often as we need it. And that's all the time in varying degrees. God provides it for us. Come on, give him praise today. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Thank you for your death on our behalf. 
So, but, but I say, they say, well, you know, I feel guilty. I'm like, well, before, especially before Christ, like that's who you are. Like that's your nature. Like you're, you're a sinner walking in sin. You're dead in trespasses. And what you do, I mean, you do things that make you guilty. And once again, I'm sorry to be redundant, but I got to make sure we get this. I have the gift of repeat. Here it comes. You were dead. I was dead. And God made us alive. It wasn't my doing. It wasn't your doing. It was his doing. And that doing, what he gave us, is a gift. Not a reward for our good deeds. Not a reward, God going, finally you did it. I've been waiting on you for a couple decades. Here you go, here's grace. No, when you had nothing to bring to the table, God showed his love to you and offered you this what? Gift. It's a gift. It's not a reward, it's a gift. So I've said it this way. Salvation is a gift for the guilty. Who are the guilty? Everyone in here. We're all guilty. It's, it's a gift for the guilty, not a reward for the righteous, as I just said. An, an old theologian said it this way. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made your salvation necessary. Now, the first service got that. Did y'all get what I just said? You didn't contribute anything except the sin that Jesus came to die for. You don't contribute to your salvation. He brings salvation to you in your dead state, and he offers it to you. So here's the way that it works. We brought death. What did I bring to the table? What did I bring to the spiritual table? What did you bring? What did I just say? What did Paul say? What? Death, right? We brought death, but God brought what? Life. That's what God brought. We provide sin, and we do it so well, don't we? Come on, professional sinners. Some of y'all are real good at it. Some better than others. You understand I'm being a little silly there, but we don't want to glory in sin. But I'm saying truthfully, some, some, whoa. All right, another story. Uh, we bring the sin, just the sin of unbelief. And you know what is attached to that. You know what's downstream from that. We bring sin. What does God bring? He brings grace. What, what did God send? We bring the sin. God sent the Savior. God provides the substitute for your sin when you're dead. When you had nothing to give, God provided everything you would ever need through Jesus. Hallelujah. Somebody help me. Hallelujah. Maybe you never said that word in a day in your life. Say it with me. Hallelujah. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Like you had no chance getting to the other side. One old preacher said it's like, you know, it's like someone trying to run from one side of the Grand Canyon from this side to jump to the other at the greatest distance. Let's just, let's, let's make it real good. Now, some, some people could get a running start and jump farther than others from one side to the other, right? Some, some you got big, strong legs, you, you ran track, and you, you're just built that way. You can jump and leap. You're like a deer. Some of y'all could jump farther than others, but no one's going to make it to the other side. That's a picture of your relationship with God, that some of us are, are better than others, but none of us are going to get from one side from spiritual death all the way to spiritual life unless God does it in us and for us. If he doesn't provide that grace, we're never going to make that jump. Does that make sense? So we brought the death. God brought life. We provide the sin. God provided the Savior. Therefore, there is zero boasting. So in other words, no one here could jump up or should jump up and say, hey, like I did this like, because I'm spiritual. Like I've always known that I'm special. Well, maybe you are. I don't want to take away from that. God made, made each one of us different, and we're made in his image. And I don't want to take away from who you are uniquely before God. But remember, here's who we are before God, before we came to Christ. Guilty and dead. Once again, I'm reinforcing this. There's nothing that we could bring to the table so that we could jump up and say, I did that, or even a part of that. There's no boasting at all. Our boast, listen, church, our boast, 
must be in the cross of Christ in what he has done for us. No boasting, just praising. <laughs> no boasting, just relishing in the grace of God that is ours now and will be forever. Can I get a better amen? Forever. It's ours forever. If you're in Christ, you're always going to be in Christ forever. So Paul, Paul is belaboring the point. I'm belaboring the point to make it, make it clear that this is the basis of our salvation. However, everybody say however. However, however. good transitional word. However, hold what I just said in your mind and consider this. However, we do have a part to play in our response to what God has done. We do have a part to play in, keyword, response to the free, gift, the free gift that God's given. Are y'all with me? We have a part to play. We don't save ourselves. Watch this. God makes us alive, and out of that state of being alive, we have then a part to play. What is that part? Well, we must respond to God, to Christ, with a five-letter word. F-A-I-T-H. I won't repeat the man that sang the song, but if you remember back, I think it was in the 80s, someone sang, you got to have... I can't believe y'all listen to that stuff. Faith to faith to... Raise your hand if you're old enough to remember that song. You got to have faith to uh, Younger people, you can Google it. Um, you got to have what? In response to all that God has done, we must have... We must have faith. Paul is so clear about this truth. And there's a lot of confusion on what faith is. I mean, I could go around and ask you to define what faith is, and I'm sure we get a lot of great answers here. But nonetheless, there's a lot of confusion about what faith is and what it involves. So let, let, let me start by telling you what it's not. Faith is, listen carefully to the words. I've, I've crafted this carefully. Faith is not just saying that you believe in God. Most of Acadiana says, people say, well, I believe in God. Would y'all agree with that? Yes. Most, not all. But how many of y'all know it's one thing to say that? Let me say it in alignment with my title. It's one thing to talk the talk. It's another thing to walk the walk. And I'm going to argue that faith is not just talk, that it empowers a specific walk. And if you have the talk without the walk, you don't have the real thing. Did that preach good to y'all? Does that make sense? Does that job? Okay. So it's not just saying that you believe in God. I mean, I've met people over the years and they, they, people have said to me, I believe in God. And then when, not in a, not in a, um, a rude way, but I'll probe people and to, you know, try, to try to get down to like, what God do you believe in? Which, which God about, of all the apparent gods out there? Like, talk to me about your higher power, people will often call them. And, and in cases, people can't really get down to like a particular God. It's just, I believe there, there's a God up there somewhere. And some people will call God their higher power. Now, I understand what people mean by that. But when you look in the Bible, my God, and presumably your God, has a name. <laughs> my Savior has a name, and his name is Jesus. The only way to God, the only way to the Father is through the Son. All right? So we have to get real specific here about when we talk about believing in God. I mean, it's, it's not just saying that you believe. Number two, it's not just, number next, look at this, not just believing, what? Right things about God. And how many of y'all know that's important? Let's back it up. How many of y'all know it's important to believe in God? Yes. How many of y'all know it's important to believe right things about God? All yes. oh, that's wonderful, but this is not the core of what faith really involves. Listen to what James says to his audience. You believe that God is one. Let me translate this for our purposes. For people out there, they believe in God. They say, I believe there's one God. You know what James would say? Well, he says it right here. You do what? <laughs> what does it say? 
You do what? In other words, okay, good. You believe that there's one God? You believe there's one Messiah? Okay, that's good. That's good. You do? What's he say? You do well. But look at the look at what he goes on to say. Even the what? Even the demons believe in what? Shudder. So like if we're just saying like we believe that God is one, well, we're like right there with the demons. Okay? And how many of y'all know demons can't be saved? Okay, so he, he's not trying to be overly sarcastic. He's trying to provoke them, those that would think that faith is just some verbal thing that we, we profess, that we have. No, no, no. It's not just believing in God with our, with our lips. It's not just pointing out right things about God, though both are true. Let me give you one more. Number three, it's not just having an optimistic attitude or positive outlook in life. Sometimes we'll describe people in these terms. Oh, I know that guy, or I know that gal. He or she, uh, that person is a person of faith. And what we mean sometimes is, well, that person is just optimistic. Y'all know people like that? They're just optimistic. Like they bounce around, they're smiling and optimistic about everything in the present and the future. Y'all know people like that? Raise your hand if you're that way. I got to get to know you better. I I need more people like that in my life. All that's amazing, but that's not faith. That's the result of faith, but that in itself isn't faith. Some people, let's be honest, some people, and maybe this is you, and my name is Pastor Scott, I'm always your friend. But some people just have faith in faith. <laughs> like, they don't even know, like, who really to look to or how all this is going to work out. They don't really have a real concrete reason to be optimistic. They just, they say, I'm just a person of faith. But biblical faith is not merely just walking around with a positive attitude or with this optimistic outlook on life. By the way, I am very optimistic about life, especially about the end of history. And I don't get overly concerned about what's on the front page because I've read the last page of the Bible that we win because Jesus wins. I'm very optimistic, but my hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. I don't have faith in faith. I don't have just like some feeling things are going to work out. I know things are going to work out. That God's working all things for our good because his word says that he is. And I trust his word. Which leads us to the true biblical definition of faith. Are y'all okay with me teaching y'all? Remember, no hype, just depth. We're going into the word. And let this equip you and let this transform you. So what is biblical faith? What is it? You tell me what it's not, and I could give you like nine pages of things that it's not. Let me just tell you what it is. What is biblical faith? Well, pistis is a six-letter Greek term, as we read here in Ephesians 2, and scholars have defined it in different ways. Let me give you, again, the simplest definition I can without losing substance. Sometimes we make things so simple, the substance just drains out, okay? Let me give you a simple but hopefully meaningful definition that will change your life in the way that you look at God. Biblical faith involves belief in, of course, your intellect, your mind is involved, your heart's involved. We believe in, but it involves trust. Everybody say trust. Belief in, trust in Jesus, in God, to the point that we become reliant on God. So believing in God But as R.C. Sproul says, believing God. In believing him to the point that we believe his word so much that we trust his word. How do I do what I do day to day? How do you do what you do every day? Well, you can answer that in a lot of different ways. But the Bible says this, without faith, it's impossible to please him. How do we put a smile on the face of God? We do it by exercising our faith in him, which is not just verbally saying, God, I believe you exist. That's great, yes. But it's believing him to the point that you believe that he is, you believe his word, you believe he's 100% trustworthy, and that transforms you to the point where you're like, okay, Jesus, I am not only believing, I'm, I'm trusting in your word. I'm living on your word. I'm trusting it. Every moment of my day, I'm trusting you. There's nothing in me that's good. I'm trusting you. So it's trust, but, it, but y'all, it's trust to the point that you become dependent on God, relying on God. It's not a Sunday morning, lift your hands and let's do something religious. It's, okay, we lift our hands here, praise God. 
But faith really becomes active, not so much on Sunday. Yes, we use it here. But it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's through the week, living in faith, living, looking away from self, looking to God. Not just believing in him, but believing him and trusting him. And by extension, relying on him for our very lives. For life, for breath, for now, for eternity, we depend on Christ. I just told someone the other night who was struggling with the fear of death. I said, I get it. I understand. No one's looking forward to dying. I said, but are you a believer? And this person said, I am. I said, let me explain to you what that means. It means you trust Jesus. It means you place your, your hope in him. It means that you depend on him. It means that he's the object of your faith. I said, is that so? Do you believe in that way too? To the extent that you're trusting him to save you now and forever. And he said, yes. I said, well, then you, sh you should have no fear of death. Y'all know for us in Jesus Christ, the forecast is very bright. There's going to be some bumps and some clouds, some puddles, some tribulations in this world. But the long-range forecast in Jesus is really, really good because the S-O-N is out and working for us. Do y'all believe that? And I don't mean just say it, but I mean not just with your lips, but with your lives. You depend on what I just said. And the person that points to, do you? I hope you do. But it is a fight of faith, isn't it? It's not just something you get and you're like, got it. It's like you have it, you exercise it, then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of, that's why you need to be in church. You say, why is this guy preaching at me? Because you need to hear the word because the word builds faith. It comes, but you got to believe when you do, you place your trust in that and it builds you up, doesn't it? And it emboldens you, doesn't it? It makes you not just come in and hear a good word, but it, it transforms you and inspires you to leave this place and go live for God. And as you do, you bring a smile to his face by faith. Everybody say, you got to have faith. You got to have faith. So biblical faith involves belief in, trust in, reliance on God. Yeah, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever heard of uh, Charles Blondin, the famous French tightrope walker. Anybody? Well, <laughs> I didn't think so. This man's kind of buried in history. But Blondin's greatest fame came on September 14th. As you all remember, it was 1860. <laughs> Nobody remembers that. But, but Blondin, uh, this was his biggest moment, as far as I know, in his career. Because on this date, they, they stretched a tightrope across Niagara Falls. A quarter mile across, 160 feet above the, the waters, Okay. And Blondin, we can say he was a man of faith. I think he was crazy. But, uh, like, I hate heights. Like, I fear the Lord and I hate heights. Like, if, if I had to go up there, like, you'd have to pray for me. Like, we're talking about building the balconies. I'm like, I'm never going up there. I hate heights. Anybody hate heights? I hate heights. Okay. You say, you got to have faith, Pastor. I'm like, I got none. <laughs> you know, I got none for, for that. When I go, I have none. Like, just take me down. But think about this. A tightrope stretch a quarter mile across the falls. And as history tells us, Blondin... He would walk from one side to the other across this tightrope. I mean, it's just nuts to think about. Like, how do you choose that as a career? Like, I'm going to make my living walking a tightrope. Some of y'all walk other types of tightropes that are just as dangerous. That's another message. But he would walk from one side to the other. He would do it blindfolded. He did it during the daytime. He did it during the nighttime. Walking back and forth. People came from all over to watch this man walked across this rope. He would ride a bicycle across from one side to the other. And he even, we're told, he went across on stilts. The rope on stilts. Google it, research it later. Even if that's far-fetched, even if that didn't happen, just the fact that he walked across a tightrope. Over Niagara Falls. One, one report said that he walked out on one occasion, had a stove, he cooked an omelet suspended in midair there on that rope in Niagara Falls. Cooked an omelet in a stove he's carrying. Now, you call that faith, I just call that stupidity, right? <laughs> Give him a high five if he's in heaven when you get there, but that's just crazy. Well, on one occasion, Blondin put a sack of potatoes in a wheelbarrow, and he pushed the wheelbarrow from one side to the other. And the crowd oohed and awed 
at Blondin's tenacity and his courage, his, his determination to do the impossible. They oohed and awed at Blondin going back and forth. And Blondin went to the other side. He dumped the potatoes out of the wheelbarrow as they oohed and awed. And he asked, he said, who here believes that I can take one of you, put you in this wheelbarrow, and go from one side to the other? Now let's back up a minute. Before this, everybody's ooing and aahing. And according to the report, people were chanting about Blondin. We believe, we believe you can do anything because you're the greatest tightrope walker in the world. That's what they had been saying. How many of y'all know it's one thing to say that? It's another thing to truly believe that to the point where your own life is in his hands. So who here believes that I can put you in my wheelbarrow and push you from one side to the other? He asked for volunteers. And how many of y'all know everyone was wise enough to leave their hands down? <laughs> See, they believed, at least in this sense, they said, you're the greatest. We believe, Blondin, you're the greatest tightrope walker in the world. They said it, but according to the definition I gave you, did they really believe it? Well, maybe, maybe, as long as they're not involved in the stunt. For everybody else, maybe. But, but fundamentally, no one there had the, had the trust in him to, to place themselves in that wheelbarrow, to get in that, to trust him to go from one side to the other. So herein lies the difference between just saying that we believe and actually believing. It's one thing to say that we believe in Jesus. It's another thing to, by faith, get in the wheelbarrow and trust him to take us from spiritual death into spiritual life. From earth across the tightrope with the flames of hell underneath to heaven on the other side. It takes faith, but not just faith in the, in the verbal sense, but, but trusting Jesus. Jesus, I'm giving you my life, my eternity, all that I am. I'm trusting you that if I'm in in you, I'm in good hands. It's believing with every fiber of being that you have, all that you have. Jesus, I trust you. Next time you become afraid, next time you're fearful, just let those words, just let them come out of your mouth, hopefully from a place of meaning for you. I trust you. Say it till you really believe it. Say it till you really believe it. Jesus, I trust you. I believe you. Sometimes our lips are here, but as one old preacher said, our hearts can be way over there. God says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How many of y'all know we need our hearts to catch up with our lips? And from that place, we believe God. We believe God, I trust you. I trust you. Let me ask you a question, do you trust him? Enough to get in the wheelbarrow. Enough for him to take you to where he promises to take you. Do you believe? Well, we fight the good fight of faith, don't we? Let me say something real controversial. And don't message me. Don't, I, don't, I won't read it. Here it comes. We are saved. Here it comes. We are saved by our good works. Is that true? It's not true. Let me say something else. So stick with me. We are saved by good works. Is that true? Let's go back in. We're saved by our good works. Is that true? It's not true. Are we saved by good works? Is that true? It is. Did you know you were saved by good works? Did you know that? Not yours. You're like, oh, I can keep coming to the church. You're not saved by yours. You're not saved by yours. You're saved by whose? By his. You bring nothing to the table. All you do is acknowledge that he's already brought it all. And you live in that state of mind. You're saved by good works. Just not yours. Paul says we're saved by grace through faith 
This is not of ourselves. Salvation is the gift of God. He says, so that nobody can boast. What is God after in us? He wants us just to believe him. Not just believe in him, but believe him. That's what he wants. Because when you believe him, you do what? You honor him. When you believe him and you place your trust in him, let's build this out, and you rely on him, what do you do? You honor him. When you look in and you try to share in that work, well, then the honor is spread between you and God. And God says, I will not share my glory with another. Are y'all with me? We are saved by Jesus' good works. He lived a perfect life. He died an atoning death for us. He rose from death. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he is right now. Jesus lived. Jesus bled. Jesus died for you and for me. And right before he died, it's one word in the Greek text, translates as three in English, to telestai. Jesus said from the cross, it is is finished. What was finished? Well, read my dissertation. I have a whole chapter that addresses this. Let me tell you in 30 seconds. Part of my chapter deals with it. It means that your redemption, the work for your redemption, it's finished. Jesus meant that all the work that he did for you, living righteously, his active obedience, his passive obedience, dying on the cross, allowing people God made to nail him to the tree. And at that tree of death, you and I, we find life. He said, it's finished. To tell us die, it's done. It's done. It's done. It's paid for. It's complete. It's finished. And then he breathed his last. How many of y'all are thankful that Jesus ran the race to the end. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for you. And so he says, it's finished. It's finished. But we're, sometimes we're coming around trying to add to that finished work by what we do. And if you do that, you're taking away from the glory of God and you're sharing in that glory yourself. And God says, I will not give my glory or share it with another. Can we just rest in the finished work of Jesus? Because Jesus, I believe in you, but I trust, I trust that sacrifice. Y'all trust the sacrifice? Y'all believe it's strong enough? But you're not living, some of y'all aren't living like it. Not the ones who just said yes, I'm not trying to, I'm just saying, once you repent of your sins, First John 1, 9, when you become a Christian, your guilt, your shame is placed on him. And the grace of Christ is greater than the sin in you. But sometimes we're still walking around like we're, we're guilty and like we're, we're still under the curse. You're not under the curse. Some of y'all aren't getting it. If you're in Christ, you're no longer under the curse. You are in the sphere of relationship with God in life, eternal life. And eternal life is not just something you get. It's what you have, according to the grammar of John. You have it. But do you believe it? If you believe it, but listen, beliefs, beliefs drive your behaviors. And if you get this, truly believe and trusting and rely, it will drive the way you live. Let me conclude by saying this. Let me ask the question first, and I'll answer it. So, what does biblical faith do? Well, I've already said it saves. Fair enough? Y'all get it? But let me be more precise. It saves because faith, looking away from self to Christ, faith unites you to Jesus. And technically, of course, he saves. But do you see how faith, faith forsakes one's own resources and faith looks to his resources, to God's resources. Does that make sense? 
So maybe you've never heard this language, and that's why I'm here to teach you. If you are a Christian, it's not about punching your ticket to go to heaven. Thank God. Thank God we're going to go to heaven. Thank God one day heaven's going to come to the earth. Thank God there's going to be a new heaven, new earth. Thank God for all of that. Of course. But listen, right now, consider yourself made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Though you're seated at Midtown, you're technically seated with him in heavenly places. And faith puts you in relational proximity, proximity with Jesus. So you're in him, Ephesians 1. You're with him, Ephesians 2. You can't get any closer than that, y'all. We're saved because we are united to him. And therefore, we stand righteous before him, before God. It saves. We got it. You got it. But let me conclude with this. It not only saves us, but faith produces good works through us. Question, do your good works save you? Everybody go like this. Not a chance. Because if they did, you would have an occasion for boasting. Do your good works save you? Whose good works save you? God's, Jesus. Is the, we, we got that, right? But still, some, some here, you have an aversion to the words good works. And I, and I, and I sympathize if you do. So, some of you were raised in a context where if it wasn't explicit, it was implied that you got to go do enough and become good enough Basically, live by the law long enough so that if you do that, clean your life up, do what you need to do. If it's good enough, then you come to God and he'll go, okay, now I got you. Okay, finally. You're looking good now. Before, not so much. Now, I'm being a little silly. I'm exaggerating for the emphasis here. But some of you perhaps were taught explicitly or implicitly that you clean your life up you do good stuff, you come to God, and then he accepts you. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, well, that Jesus died, he rose, and that he's ascended as the king of the universe, and that he has provided salvation through his name for all who believe. And you don't come after you've cleaned yourself up, you come to him, and by his cross death, and by the power of the spirit, he cleans you up. And he makes you into a brand new creation. And if we get this out of order, our minds and our lives will be out of order. Isn't it true? God not only makes us alive, he not only raises us and seats us in Christ in heavenly places, he also makes us new creations in Christ who do, here's the key words here, new works so your works are not the root of your salvation your works are the fruit Paul says for we are his workmanship Ephesians 2.10 we are his workmanship created look at the language here I I know I'm going along but that's just another Sunday at Midtown watch this For we are his workmanship, created where? In what sphere? In Christ Jesus. For what purpose? For good works. So we don't want to say, do we? Based on what Paul's saying, well, I just have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not like, I'm I'm not into all the work stuff. I'm I'm just into Jesus. If you say that, Jesus will look at you and say this. uh, Well, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light, what? Shine before whom? Others, so that others may, what? See your, what is it? Now, some of you have have, have a hard time reading that. So that others may see your good, what? 
See, here's what I'm getting at. If you're in him and with him, made alive, raised and seated and created, he's made you brand new. He's taken your broken pieces. He's turned you into his masterpiece or he's at least in the process of doing that. Don't you think that will result in your life looking a lot more like his? Meaning for someone to say I'm in Christ but fail to look like him is a contradiction. At least on a consistent, ongoing basis. We all have deficiencies. There's you know, hypocrisy in everybody in here. What I'm saying, though, if you're really born again, you've got new life. There's light. You care. You've been united with Christ. You're seated with him. And therefore, the life of the risen Christ flows through you, doesn't it? Or at least it's supposed to, if you believe what Paul is saying. Y'all, this is so profound and so deep and so rich, and so skipped over by so many preachers because they, they think that, well, I'm just going to get to the just, I need the practical stuff. Y'all, this is as practical as it gets. You are raised with Christ, and you're with him. He's in you by the, by the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, if we remain in him, he'll remain in us. We'll bear fruit and fruit that remains. Just him, his life, the Spirit moving through us. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved for our good works. And I don't care how many good works you do, how much money you give to legacy, thank God for all of that. But none of that provides the foundation of your salvation. None of that makes you right with God. All of that flows from your relationship with God because you've already been made right with Him. Jesus says, so that all may see your good works and give glory to whom? Not to you, but to whom? The Father, your Father who is in heaven. Look at what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, uh, 18. He says, they, meaning the rich. Listen, we love poor people, we love rich people. I don't have anybody in particular in my back pocket. I love everybody. But Paul has warnings for, for each category of people. The things, we all have proclivities, don't we? Don't we? Simple proclivities. Temptations? Okay, here's what he says to the rich in this context. He says, they, the rich, are to do good. Rich people, thank God you're here. Do good. Use the resources God's given you to do good. Look at this. To be rich in what? Is that really in the Bible? Did Paul just tell Timothy to be rich in good works? Of course he did. Because he knew Timothy was rich in Christ. He was united with Christ. He knew. And so he could say to Timothy, through Timothy, to the people that he addressed this very thing. Tell them to be rich in good works. And finally, Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and what? There it is again. And my fear is there's a whole community, a subculture of Christianity who is afraid, they're afraid of doing good works because, well, maybe you're raised believing, being taught to believe that those good works make you right before God and you, you came to realize that it's by grace through faith. But you're afraid. We are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We are the body of Christ. One more thought, watch this. You know that's not true, right? A few more thoughts. Here, I'm wrapping up, here it is. You do good works, you should do them. Little things. Hey. Sending somebody a word of encouragement. Y'all know that's a good word? I mean, forget, forget the works. I'm, I'm talking about good works just that flow from your relationship with God. Giving money to legacy so that we can reach people in the world, so we can help a missionary in Asia. That, that's a good work. You do the good works, but you know who's really doing them? It's the risen ascended Lord of all creation, who you are in union with, who is doing those works through us. Watch this, 
the body of Christ. So Jesus' physical body is not here, is it? But we, collectively the church, are his body in union with Christ. And we are called to do his works. Good works. And when we do, we bring a little bit of heaven to the earth every time we do. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, but we are created in Christ to be like him here in earthly places. Our good works are from another world when we do them. Well, that's just Jesus really, really technically doing them through us for the glory of God. And so what is Paul saying as we wrap up? What's he saying? We were created in Christ Jesus to walk this way. You're like, where, which direction? To walk (laughs) this way that I've been articulating. To walk the walk, not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk, trusting him, believing his word, walking in faith. And as we do, I'm reminded of what Paul says, we used to walk in the course of this world, in trespasses and sins. But come on, y'all. Now we should all have a new walk. We've been made alive to walk differently. And we do so only because of the amazing grace of God. Can I get